millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, it's Jeremy here. We're going to do things slightly differently this week on the World Review podcast. Emily, Ido, and our colleague, Dimi Ryder, have all written for the New Statesman this week about the Israel-Palestine crisis. So we're going to use this regular episode of World Review to discuss the week's events in as much detail as possible. Separately, Emily and I have also spoken with the political scientist Tarek Abushadi about the plight of the left and the centre-left in Europe and the United States. We'll publish that interview in full as a separate bonus episode on Monday. Now, let's begin. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 14th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. It's been a dark week in Israel and Gaza. Since Monday, dozens have been killed and hundreds injured in communal violence between Arabs and Israelis on the streets and from the air by rocket attacks and military strikes. What began as confrontations between Jewish and Arab protesters in Jerusalem on the 6th of May has escalated into mob violence in some Israeli cities. And since Monday, rocket attacks fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel and Israeli airstrikes on targets in Gaza. On Wednesday, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu denounced the violence as anarchy and pledged to return order. His government has stepped up its military action against Hamas, bombing several apartment buildings in Gaza. U.S. President Joe Biden said this. Israel has a right to defend itself when you have thousands of rockets flying into your territory. But uh, my hope is that we'll see uh, this coming to conclusion sooner than later. As we record this episode of World Review, the communal violence is intensifying and Israeli tanks have been deployed to the border with Gaza. The concern from many, including the United Nations, is that the situation will continue to escalate into, quote, full-scale war. But for those caught up in the violence, it's hard to believe it doesn't feel that way already. <laughs> to discuss all of this, we're joined by Ido Fock, who's in Tbilisi. Hi. And our colleague, Dimi Ryder, who's in London. Welcome, Dimi. Hi. Good to be here. Okay, we'd like to start with you, Dimi. You wrote a very thorough piece and really... Uh, enlightening piece about all of this, which is on the New Statesman website at the moment, in which you talk about the the events of the last week, but also the broader social context. Could you just first talk us through what has happened and give listeners who maybe haven't been following every detail um, the overview of of where we how we got to where we are now? So what's been happening over the last month or so? and has culminated in the uh, violent explosion we've seen over the past week, is actually a bunch of events happening in a bunch of arenas suddenly coming together and creating a perfect storm. The arenas are principally Jerusalem, uh, the so-called mixed cities, which are cities with uh, strong Palestinian minorities within Israel proper, and Gaza. Tensions have been simmering 
uh, in all these areas for a while. And uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, of course, you can go ever deeper and further through the years. And things are very much remembered and resentments are very much kept because most of them have never been addressed. But in the direct um, sequence of events we're seeing now, Jerusalem has been slowly coming to a boil over the month of Ramadan. Israeli restrictions on the number of people who can attend prayers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, one of the holiest sites to Islam. Added to that were um, tensions building around a, the planned eviction of Palestinian families from homes in a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, Sheikh Jarrah is one of those areas that have changed hands numerous times over the course of the conflict. It was some of the homes in this neighborhood were Jewish homes before the war of 48. Then when East Jerusalem was occupied by Jordan and West Jerusalem was occupied by Israel, these families left or were made to leave. And Palestinian families, uh, in some cases, families who were similarly evicted from the west of the city, came and settled in their homes. There has been an ongoing process over the last 20 years of evicting these families and replacing them with Jews again, both through acquisition, through persecution, and in many cases through old-fashioned harassment. Several of these uh, houses are at the center of a court case that was due to be decided this past week. So beyond the obvious humanitarian um, implications for families being evicted from their homes, it's a highly symbolic case because um, while there were Jewish families who were evicted from areas later taken on by Jordan in the War of 48, there were many more Palestinians evicted from entire villages and towns in what is now Israel proper. Many people see a very telling hypocrisy restoring pre-48 property to, to Jewish families, but not the other way around. So tensions have been simmering all around that. And they began boiling over with street clashes, uh, with um, Jewish nationalists marching through uh, the streets, chanting anti-Arab slogans, uh, with Palestinian uh, youths beating up Jewish young people uh, often putting it on TikTok. It's quite, uh, it's quite disgusting videos uh, because they obviously target um, ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews who look Jewish, attack them, TikTok it, and put it online. All this was coming to a head this past Monday, uh, which was uh, Jerusalem Day, a uh, day in the Israeli calendar that marks the uh, occupation of Jerusalem by Israeli forces in the War of 67 and the reunification of the city as... Um, Israel's um, self-proclaimed capital. For the past few years, uh, nationalist groups have begun staging flag marches through the old city, celebrating the annexation of Jerusalem and proclaiming it uh, its importance to Jewish history, to the Jewish state, and so on and so on, uh, very often clashing with Palestinian residents. And the Supreme Court verdict was on Sheikh Jarrah was supposed to be held on the same day. Uh, the violence finally bowled over over the weekend. There were, there were numerous clashes with police who eventually burst into the uh, sacred compound on Temple Mount, sending tear gas and uh, sand grenades into the mosque themselves and creating very memorable images of uh, some of the trees outside the mosque on fire and Jewish nationalists on the Western Wall Plaza below celebrating the flames and singing nationalist songs. Meanwhile, all through these weeks, uh, there have also been tensions rising in Israel's mixed cities. By mixed cities, you mean you mean cities with a with a sizable Arab population? Is that right? Yeah, it's cities. Most most of the cities were uh, historically Palestinian, lost most of their Palestinian population in the War of Forty Eight, uh, but re- but retained some cities like Jaffa, Lod, Haifa, Akko, and others. In some of these cities, there has been uh, activity by uh, nationalist. Uh, rabbis who drew a lesson from the eviction of settlements from the Gaza Strip in 2005 that said that we have neglected the home front and while we were settling the 67 territories, uh, Arabs have been taking over uh, Israeli cities and we need to push back. One of the most prominent advocates of this view was uh, and is a rabbi called uh, uh, Mali who was in mid-April was attacked on the street in Jaffa by two of his Palestinian neighbors uh, who thought he was scoping out their house for an expansion of his uh, seminary. Uh, the image, again, was very evocative. You see two, uh, two young men uh, kicking uh, a rabbi in the stomach. That provoked clashes both in Jaffa and in other cities like Lod and friction between uh, young Jewish and young Palestinian people. And when did, when did the 
communal violence then on, on the streets of these cities then escalate into the exchange of military hostilities with um, Hamas in Gaza? On, on Monday, Hamas, uh, who we identified today very much with the Gaza Strip, but with, uh, but who are fundamentally uh, an Islamic and a Palestinian nationalist uh, movement, so deeply wedded to the uh, defense of Jerusalem and specifically the defense of Jerusalem's holy site, uh, decided to step in. And they issued an ultimatum to Israel saying that if, uh, if by six o'clock you don't withdraw your forces from Temple Mount, we're going to attack. Right on time, 6.02, uh, rockets come out of the Gaza Strip uh, towards Jerusalem. They fall far short of uh, Temple Mount and Jerusalem itself. Uh, but it sort of shocks uh, uh, the capital into, into action. The, uh, the flag march is banned. Uh, the, the court verdict is uh, anyway postponed. And for a short while, it seems that this has actually calmed the situation down. But Israel instinctively um, and habitually reacts, and it seems thought that it needs to react, especially forcefully, to an attack an attack on its capital. And so it launches an air raid that kills twenty four people, uh, of whom nine were children. In brackets, uh, Israel itself claims that uh, the children were killed as a result of a failed rocket launch, but uh, it's uh, at the moment it's impossible to tell. So we have a, a rocket attack on Jerusalem. We have uh, an air raid on Gaza Strip that kills a high number um, of people. And this is something the Hamas can't leave unanswered. So it's, it fires again and everything sets off. A lot of people listening to this will have seen the footage of the rocket attacks from Gaza and their um, interception in some cases by Israel's um, Iron Dome system, as it's called, as well as um, the footage of the Israeli airstrikes in, in in Gaza. What's what's the picture at the moment, as as you understand it? And I mean, what, what how would you characterize the picture on the ground in both on both sides of the the border with Gaza? One of the surprises of um, the current escalation was just how thick and how fast and how massive the Hamas barrages were. Uh, Israelis have gotten a little bit complacent um, about these attacks because the Iron Dome has proven very effective. Um, I uh, remember myself in 2014 seeing people take selfies with the uh, kind of like with the um, trails of the interceptor rockets, uh, you know, totally ignoring air raid sirens because they were quite convinced that Iron Dome is impenetrable. But of course, you can only launch so many interceptor missiles, and it's a very expensive system. It's much more sophisticated than the things that Hamas fires off. So just by sheer quantity, they managed to overwhelm Iron Dome on a few occasions, and there have been several casualties uh, on the Israeli side. Uh, They've also, uh, they've repeatedly hit uh, Tel Aviv and its suburbs, uh, which is kind of the, the, the heartland uh, for Israelis and the symbol of um, normality and kind of distance from the uh, war-torn Middle East. Um, so it's always very impactful when this bubble is punctured. On the other side, um, Israel has launched hundreds and hundreds of um, air raids and artillery strikes, attacking an interesting choice of targets. They appear to have targeted mostly field units of both Hamas and other paramilitary organizations. Um, second-tier commanders in Hamas, but to our knowledge, have not attempted to take out the senior political or military leadership. They have also, in this uh, round, made a point of targeting high-rise buildings, saying that some of them are used as military installations, um, weapon caches, but mostly offices for paramilitaries. And there's been a really kind of strange refrain in all the IDF press conferences pointing out how many tower, towers they've knocked down and they still have a lot of towers to knock down and these towers are crumbling. So kind of trying to create, I think, a, um, a soundbite or a narrative that would allow them at some point to say, well, we've knocked down all the towers, we can stop now. And that's, um, and that's another distinguishing feature of this um, escalation round is that neither party seemed to have planned to go to war when things escalated. There isn't really a goal uh, that one of them is pursuing to the death, as it were. Um, Hamas knows that it can't overwhelm 
uh, Israel militarily. It can uh, make life very difficult for Israelis. It can inflict casualties, mostly civilian casualties, but it can fight one of the most powerful armies in the world to total defeat. Israel uh, technically could uh, defeat Hamas, but has no interest in doing so because a it has it wants it needs someone to manage manage Gaza and its population. It has absolutely no interest uh, in taking full responsibility for over a million uh, Palestinians, and it also needs someone to manage the various paramilitary groups that exist there. And Hamas has proven uh, a reliable interlocutor, and people people who can clamp down on their rivals domestically if these rivals try to uh, attack Israel on their own terms. So um, despite the violence, despite uh, assassinating uh, select Hamas officers, Israel has no interest in actually eliminating Hamas from the picture. So both parties need something, some sort of achievement to show to their constituencies and say, well, in Israel's case, we've knocked down a bunch of these towers. Uh, we've conducted more strikes than ever before, fired more artillery shells than ever before, and we think they've learned their lesson. And Hamas can say, we have defended uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque from the Jewish nationalists. We fired more missiles than ever before, faster and thicker and further, and we think they've learned their lesson. Hopefully that will be uh, enough to, to bring this arena uh, to a close, but it's too soon to stop. For people who have maybe not been following this as closely, can you just articulate why it's important to start the the story of the events of the past week um, with East Jerusalem and with Sheikh Jarrah? So Jerusalem is kind of an exception to all the rules of the conflict. It's the most central cultural and religious city to both communities, Uh, but one community has not been allowed to set up a capital there, Palestinians, and one and the community that has set up a capital there uh, is struggling to gain recognition uh, from uh, from the international community and, of course, from the other community for its claim to the city. It's an Israeli Israel has annexed the city, but has not given citizenship to the population that annexed. Um, so it's uh, it's kind of half occupied territory, half part, sovereign part of Israel. It has a huge Palestinian population, uh, but until recently the populations were quite segregated, Palestinians in the East and uh, Jews in the West. And it's it's by far the most uh, emotionally evocative place, I think, for everyone between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea and both, and both diasporas, the Palestinian and the Jewish one. For, for, for Palestinians, it's also bound up with the idea of having any sort of state whatsoever, right? Because yeah. one presumes the capital of a of a state called Palestine would be East Jerusalem, and I, I suppose to the extent to the extent to which that seems under threat, so does the the possibility of any sort of Palestinian state in the future. Absolutely, and uh, and to be honest, the Palestinian state of the future has been reduced to such abstract outlines uh, that symbolism really is uh, everything to play for. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not likely to have any borders of its own that um, that are not also borders with Israel. It's not going to have a military. I mean, I personally, frankly, think it's just not going to happen, period. Yeah. But uh, if all you get for your national, um, for your national struggle and for all your compromises is a, a little statelet uh, with the capital in Ramallah or Bethlehem, then was it worth the effort? So that brings us on to the politics. And here I'd like to hear um, from uh, also Ido and Emily. Um, why don't you start, Ido? Could you just sort of give us a sense of, first of all, what's been happening in Israeli politics? And secondly, I know you've been looking into the latest in Palestinian po- politics. And um, a parallel seems to be that um, in, in both camps, um, there's a degree of instability, perhaps even you know, a sort of division of, or, or an absence of power in any one vested in any one source. Uh, could you just sort of talk us through that, that political situation? Because it does seem to help explain why the mood has been so fraught in the last few weeks. First on the Israeli side, Israel has just in March had its fourth election in two years. And the reason it's had uh, four elections in that span of time is because politics has essentially been stuck in 
stasis and the pro and anti Netanyahu sides in government, although the parties vary slightly each time, are pretty much evenly matched and the anti Netanyahu side has not been able to gain enough members of parliament to form a government, but neither can Netanyahu form a government. And so each time it goes back to the voters and because nothing really changes between elections, then not too many voters change their mind. And so you get, you've had this essentially close to the same result four times in a row. It seemed for a while after this election, this latest election, that that might be changing and that there might be a very sort of uh, heterogeneous coalition that could, anti-Netanyahu coalition that could be formed. It would have involved parties of the centre, it would have involved um, a far-right party with Naftali Bennett, and unusually also a Israeli-Arab party, which who would all have come together to uh, unseat Netanyahu, and I think Bennett would have got the prime ministership. That was uh, appeared to be quite close to happening, but because of the latest bout of fighting, Bennett uh, went on TV at time of recording yesterday and said that there wouldn't be a uh, that the negotiations were off and that there wouldn't be a change, uh, what he called a change government at this time. Just briefly before you go on to the the Palestinian side, Netanyahu's there as as technically a caretaker prime minister, and it's been suggested that because he's tied up with um, both this political uncertainty but also his own. a court trial, which is still ongoing, that he hasn't been exactly hasn't been particularly engaged with with, with events in, in in recent days and weeks. Do you do you buy that? Uh, and do you think do you think it's been a factor? Yeah, Ansel Pfeffer, who's a who's a writer, wrote a piece for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, arguing that Netanyahu had essentially been a kind of absentee prime minister, and that part of the reason that we've seen this this escalation in recent days is that Netanyahu has been away from 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 the action um and he's, there's a kind of dereliction uh, dereliction of leadership obviously i'm not i'm not in israel i can't i'm not sort of uh, that plugged into the political developments but it does seem to me that if you have this dynamic where you have a caretaker prime minister whose overarching political priority is to stay in office um he is dependent upon the support of various far right-wing to far-right nationalists, but even with them can't get enough seats to form a stable government, uh, that seems to me a recipe to avoid compromise and to appear hardline just because of the dynamics, both in terms of immediately staying in power as a caretaker prime minister and also... uh, and so avoiding the formation of an alternative government and also not alienating the parties which do support him and the parties which kind of instinctively might be inclined to support him. Before we move on to the to the Palestinian end of the political equation, given that there's this this political, I don't know, chaos on the Israeli side, Demi, do you think do you feel that there is an appreciation of what you described earlier, which is that which is that this is different, right? And now there's fighting within Israel between neighbors. I know I saw Defense Minister Benny Gantz made a statement of, of we can't we can't win the battle for Gaza, but lose or win the battle in Gaza, but lose the battle for home. But but what does that first of all? What does that mean? And second of all, is there a sense among the political leadership that yes, this is different, this is serious, and this is irreversible, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you. I was going to uh, I was going to get to that. The main distinguishing. Uh, characteristic here is uh, the scale of intercommunal fighting uh, within Israel proper. Usually, the violence uh, in this conflict is confined to organized actors. You have the Israeli army on one side, and you have various paramilitary organizations on the other side. And uh, and even if you have so-called lone wolf attacks or alleged lone wolf attacks, uh, where a uh, say a uh, a Palestinian walks up to a checkpoint and uh, tries to stab a soldier, it's still primarily interacting with the army. Um, So any escalation is very much under control. What's been happening over the past week is uh, people who live side by side or at most a few streets away going out into the streets and attacking each other, trashing businesses, um, 
setting up uh, impromptu checkpoints to uh, quiz drivers if they're Arab or Jewish and if they don't like the answer, pulling them out of their cars and beating them up. And the reason it's so dangerous and uh, so frightening uh, to, uh, to the leadership is that over the last 30 years, we've kind of come to imagine that because there's talk about a two-state solution, it's a negotiation between two states, uh, two distinct areas, uh, one called Israel, one called Palestine, each containing Israelis and Palestinians, respectively. This is not at all the case. Um, it's not the case anywhere on either side of the uh, of the Green Line. It's not the case uh, in the West Bank, where um, settlements are often nestled among or above Palestinian villages. Uh, and it's not the case in, in Israel proper, where not only you have um, many uh, so-called mixed cities, but you've had um, a steady migration of a rising Palestinian middle class into previously primarily Jewish-majority cities. And it's, in many ways, this process uh, was uh, a very positive one. You suddenly have more uh, Palestinian voices in the media, in the arts. There's much more interaction in workplaces, and so on and so forth. But this is the kind of uh, the kind of rather thin coexistence that doesn't really uh, stand the test when uh, the national conflict flares up again. Because of how interspersed the populations are, the kind of the risk we're seeing is uh, that instead of an occasional an often very devastating flare-up on one front, you will have a constant dribble of of altercations and violence on 100,000 fronts, something like Northern Ireland in the 70s, uh, or um, or in the absolutely worst-case scenario, though I think we're not quite there yet, something like Rwanda or uh, you know places in Yugoslavia where communities lived uh, intermingled or side-by-side side and suddenly your colleague from work took a knife and went after you. Uh, this, I think, is what's uh, terrifying. Uh, it's uh, it's the loss of control and the re- very real potential that will tear the country apart, not into two sides, not into in, not in a partition scenario, but into a, a, a thousand tiny shreds. So another part of that story about how this isn't simply two two states in conflict with each other, uh, you know, it is a lot more complicated than that um, is the fact that there is no single democratically elected Palestinian counterpart to the Israeli government. So for, for more on that, Ido, can, can you just take us over to the other side of, 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 of the political equation and, and, and tell us about the latest in, in Palestinian politics? The territory which is taken as the basis for a future Palestinian state is actually two territories. You have to the west of Israel, you have the Gaza Strip, and to the east, you have the West Bank. And those are two geographically distinct territories. And it's more complicated than this, but to simplify, they are ruled by two distinct authorities and two distinct governments, although they should be under the authority of what's called the the Palestinian Authority, which is, or as a self-styled, the state of Palestine, which is the uh, authority which the Palestinians hope will become the basis for an independent state if that's what emerges eventually. But the PA, which is controlled by Fatah, which is uh, Mahmoud Abbas's party, uh, was expelled from Gaza in 2007 after elections which Hamas, uh, which is the party which now rules Gaza, won. Um, Hamas is a more radical grouping than uh, Fatah, and disagreements among the two groups led to uh, the PA and Fatah being expelled from from uh, Gaza. So now Hamas rules Gaza and Fatah, the PA, rules part of the West Bank, not the whole of it. Some of it is under whole or partial Israeli control. Um, but most population centers are ruled by the PA, which is controlled by Fatah. Mahmoud Abbas, who's the head of the PA, is now in the 16th year of a five-year term, which began in 2005. There haven't been elections since then. Mostly it appears because uh, Abbas knows that if there were presidential or legislative elections or both, uh, Fatah would lose, and he would lose. I've been speaking to people uh, in Palestine and in Israel who tell me that it's a virtual certainty that uh, if elections were held, he would lose. 
And that's the reason that they have been delayed and delayed and delayed. As I said, he's now 15 years into a five or 16 years into a five year term. And in January, he denounced that there would finally be elections to the Legislative Council, which is the PA's um, legislature, and to the presidency. Those were meant to be held, the first of those, the legislative elections, were meant to be held next week. But they were cancelled late last month as it became obvious that Abbas would lose. Um, There were high hopes for these elections. So one of the hopes was that they would create a unified polity after uh, over a decade of separation between Gaza and the West Bank. So they, so hopefully after these elections, there would be some kind of unity and you know unified authority representing both polities. I'm not saying it's necessarily really realistic, but that was at least one of the hopes. And uh, another was that it would allow for a for new leaders to to emerge because Abbas is a heavy smoker. He's 85. Presumably, he doesn't have all that much longer left in him uh, in his in his life and uh, in his rule and the PA if it were a proper state would be classified as uh, probably an autocracy and probably quite a weak state and there is no designated successor to Abbas and uh, the question of what happens if he goes or is deposed or dies in some way is quite open and lots of people I spoke to sounded quite worried about about that possibility, and perhaps these elections could have been the opportunity to elevate uh, potential successors or rivals to Abbas. But obviously, that's also a curse for him because he doesn't want to lose power. Is terrified of losing power. Thinks he'd lose probably rightly. Thinks he'd lose to Hamas or to uh, a competitor for the presidential elections, like uh, this leader um, Baguti, Marwan Baguti. Uh, all of which means that there is an increasing chance of some probably quite nasty developments at the top of the PA, which, as we've seen this week, can, when there's instability in in the region, can escalate very, very rapidly. And the first victims are always civilians. If I can just uh, jump in and add one other reason why these elections were so keenly anticipated and why this appointment is so strong. The PA was set up as a provisional authority to facilitate the establishment of a democratic Palestinian state. 30 years down the line, uh, there is no Palestinian state, and the PA has become anything but temporary, as Ido pointed out, uh, Abbas is uh, many, many, many years into into his only uh, term. And the role that the PA assumed instead is a sort of a subcontractor of the Israeli military occupation. Uh, which both eases the task for the Israeli government and sort of gets it off the hook because whenever a very, a very I think, a pertinent recent example was the vaccination program uh, when Israel uh, would not vaccinate uh, Palestinians in, uh, in the West Bank uh, because it said, well, they have their own government now, it's their problem. Many people feel that if any progress is to be made for the Palestinian situation, whether towards two states or towards the one state, the PA and the bus specifically need to go. Uh, they are they are the the cork in the bottleneck of uh, of the Palestinian situation, and so there was some hope that some movement will happen, and now this hope has been snuffed out again. So before we move on to the international picture, I'd just like to put out one further question on this, which is how does this um, uncertainty over the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian politics play into recent events. Can can we say that it's been a contributory factor, um, or has it just just made it harder to find a solution? I would say Hamas. Another motivation for Hamas to jump into the fray was to to reassert itself, having been denied uh, a likely strong showing in the Palestinian elections. Um, it needed to uh, show that not only is it still alive and kicking, but that it's no longer con- it's no longer just confined to Gaza, ruling this little besieged statelet, I guess, enclave, uh, but that it can directly intervene in Jerusalem and actually defend Jerusalem more robustly than um, Abbas's PLO. Uh, but having said that, I think that um, we've se- we would have seen the same chain of events uh, with or without the Palestinian election background. The international community is actually pretty sort of muted on the prospects of uh, elections in Pal- elections to the to the Palestinian Authority, just because it's pretty obvious that 
Hamas would win them. They won the last elections which were held, but Fatah basically, you can correct me if this is the wrong terminology, but essentially mounted a coup and held on to power and um, have been in power ever since, as we've as we've discussed. Hamas are a, are a more militant group than Fatah, and um, that would, if, if they were to win in some way and seize power and uh, perhaps both in the West Bank, in addition to Gaza, that would cause a whole uh, set of set, new set of headaches for the international community, for, for Israel, for the relations between the PA and Israel. Um, so actually, the people I was speaking to said that although you know most sort of most international observers would pay lip service to the idea that there should be democratic elections, actually in practice, lots of them were would be quite wary and were quite wary of uh, of actually holding them just because of they might essentially come out with the wrong result and uh, make make things worse. Well, that brings us nice on to the next uh, point I wanted to discuss, and that's the international reaction to the events of the past week. Emily, you've been looking into that. Can you just give us a, a sense of how international governments have been reacting? So there are a variety of, of relevant players or, or potentially relevant players. There's Egypt, um, which which dispatched a delegation to try to negotiate a ceasefire. Um, there's the United Nations, the Security Council, which is supposed to meet um, or sorry, there's the United Nations. The Security Council is supposed to meet this weekend to discuss the situation. There are some European countries, for example, um, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron called for a reset of the negotiations. And then there's the United States. So the U.S. does not talk to Hamas and so will not directly negotiate a ceasefire or an end to this. But the U.S. clearly, I mean, clearly has, at least in theory, some leverage in the situation as in September 2016, the Obama administration, though it was criticized by some on the right for being anti-Israel, signed an agreement to give 38 billion with a B in military aid to Israel over 10 years. So that's 3.8 billion in military aid to Israel a year. The Biden administration has been very intentional prior to this about taking a more hands-off stance than the Trump administration, right? The Trump administration famously came in wanting to achieve peace in the Middle East, which it achieved by moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, stripping funding from the U.N. refugee agency that provides aid to Palestinians, and uh, the Palestinian delegation left Washington, D.C. So this was a one-sided, uh, or I should say that many, including myself, felt that this was a one-sided uh, negotiation effort on the part of the Trump administration, which clearly, as we are now seeing, did not end in peace between Israelis and Palestinians, um, although it did change diplomatic ties formally between, um, for example, the UAE and Israel. So the Biden administration comes in, doesn't want to do what the Trump administration did, doesn't come in saying we're going to achieve peace in the Middle East, says we're, we're, we're not, you know, we're not going to to really get involved in this, um, to which some, particularly, particularly on the political left, say, well, if you're giving $38 billion over 10 years, you are involved, right? You, you are inherently on the side of one of these, of one of, of, of Israel. Over the course of this conflict, we have seen the American political right criticize the Biden administration for being insufficiently supportive of Israel. Uh, the On the right wing news channel Newsmax, uh, a host said, if you were Jewish and you were a Democrat and you were living in America today, how do you support an administration that turns its back on your home country? So not to make this about American Jews, but I would just note that my country is the United States um, and, that, and that implying that I am actually Israeli um, is itself an anti-Semitic trope. But the point I'm trying to make is that even with Biden supporting, e even with what the Biden administration is doing, the political right has cast it as not um, as not being supportive enough of Israel. What the Biden administration has actually done is to say, you know, it, it's kind of the traditional line of Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, we hope that that quiet that we hope that that peace is restored soon um, and dispatched an envoy to, to the region. I think perhaps the most notable development comes from the political left, um, which has has shifted on the political left and even central left for that matter, which has shifted on this issue over the past several years. Um, last night in Washington, several members of Congress spoke on the House floor in support of Palestinians. Um, I, I don't want to overstate it. It was only it was a handful of people. But this is not something that I think we would have seen in, in previous iterations of this, I think, um, both because Trump tied himself to so tightly to Netanyahu, 
Democrats and the majority of American Jews who vote Democrat, it, it created some space for them to become more more critical of, of Israel in some ways. And so that I think is a significant development as well. Although we will see if under the Biden administration that actually turns into, into change. Just briefly, do you think that Biden might end up being more drawn into this than he wants to be? I mean, it's very clear that the administration does not want to make Israel-Palestine one of its big foreign policy themes. That There's going to be no big US push for a peace deal. Biden hasn't appointed a special envoy. I understand that from the appointments in the State Department that that has also reflected the fact that the administration has other priorities, namely moving America away from its focus on the Middle East towards the competition with China. And you see that in the sort of orthodoxy of his um, response to the to, to these events by reiterating that line about Israel's right to defend itself. But do you think he can actually hold that line, particularly if, if um, hostilities intensify further, if Israel does intervene um, with land-based forces into Gaza, um, or indeed invade, invade Gaza as it did in 2014? Do you think do you think he can keep that up? No, is it, no is the short answer. Uh, it can't. The US is too any U.S. administration is too tightly entwined with Israel for an escalation like this to happen, for violence like this to happen, and for the U.S. to not to not be involved. It, I think it's already happened. I think that I think the Biden administration is already more involved in this than it would like to be because of this week's fighting. Um, and I think that I think that the domestic political pressure from the left and the right is not going to abate. I think, per Demi's point, that that the the fighting um, in Israel is not is is very likely not going to go away, and the U.S. will be called on to comment on that or to do something on that. Um, and so, the idea—I mean, first of all, the idea that you can give a country thirty-eight billion in military aid and have it not and have what happens there not be your problem is just—it it just doesn't—it doesn't work. I guess what I'm saying is the Biden administration is already more involved in this than it would like to be, and I think it is only going to get more involved than it would like to be over the course of the Biden administration. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, that brings us to a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. Um, so the question we received this week actually came in via Twitter um, from uh, Tony Yates, who asks, I wonder if it was useful to reflect on how much has changed on the ground since the attempted agreement in 2000 at the end of the Clinton presidency, which I think is a really good question, which puts all of this in, in, a, in, in a longer term. Dimi, would you like to come in on that first? So the the... 2000 negotiations were kind of the swan song of the uh, two-state solution. And it was an attempt to actually have partition Israel, West Bank, and Gaza into a Palestinian state in West Bank and Gaza and an Israeli state in, in Israel proper. Uh, it collapsed uh, very acrimoniously um, over a number of issues. 
and it's really it's going to take more than a podcast to to get into the mutual recriminations uh, of why and how it failed. Both sides blame blame each other. Uh, I think they largely agreed. Fact is that the Israeli bid was far too low for uh, Arafat, the leader of the PLO, to um, to bring home and commit to and to keep uh, keep his presidency. It then the situation blew up completely following a visit by Israeli politician uh, Ariel Sharon, very notorious uh, among Palestinians for his role in the infamous Sabra and Shatila massacre in the eighties, uh, to Temple Mount. Uh, familiar, familiar scenes. So that's what became of this attempt. How much has changed since then? I mean, it's 21 years ago. Yeah. Obviously a lot, but could you just sort of yeah. sketch out how? Okay, so pre-2000, uh, there was there were the beginnings of Palestinian sell-through in the, in the West Bank uh, and in Gaza. There were Israeli set, some Israeli settlements in the West Bank and some in Gaza. And uh, the, the issue of Palestinian citizens of Israel, or as Israelis like to call them Israeli Arabs, was seen, was seen as a domestic civil, uh, civil rights uh, and equality issue, rather than part of the uh, general Palestinian uh, struggle. And perhaps as importantly, the, uh, the Palestinians had this unifying to a degree figure in Yasser Arafat, who was a legendary guerrilla fighter, uh, some would call him terrorist, uh, and kind of like the main articulator of Palestinian national identity um, after the 1948 war. Fast forward to 2021, uh, the Palestinian self-rule in uh, the West Bank has been reduced to only the centers of the cities, uh, with Israeli settlements expanding massively to numbers that I think cannot be evacuated anymore. And if you try and build a state out of the area not occupied by these settlements, you don't get anything contiguous at all. You get these little kind of like isolates of territories that don't look like a functioning state in any in any imagination. In Gaza, uh, Israel withdrew its settlements and its army from within uh, the territory, but has essentially turned it into an open-air prison, uh, completely controlling who goes in and who comes out uh, together with Egypt. Uh, and this is the area now ruled by Hamas. Uh, that's the other thing that the Palestinian national leaderships have split, as Ida was saying earlier, and there is now essentially uh, a failed Palestinian mini-state-led fragmented across the West Bank and a failed Palestinian mini-state led in the, um, in the Gaza Strip. However, in Israel itself, the, uh, the pro-negotiation left has collapsed in 2000 and never really recovered. Israel has moved off the chart to the right. Uh, the right wing in Israel sets the tone and there is no important political party has even run on the premise of a peace process in maybe in 10 years, maybe more. I, I genuinely don't remember when someone with any chance uh, at uh, leading a government uh, went uh, on an election campaign saying, I will go back to the negotiation table with the Palestinians. Uh, and sorry, but one other thing that's one kind of like development in the other direction is that after all these years of fragmentation of saying, well, the West Bank and the settlements is one issue, Gaza is another issue, Palestinian refugees is a third issue, and Palestinian citizens of Israel is an altogether fourth issue. We are now seeing a convergence uh, of more and more Palestinian citizens of Israel becoming more and more involved in the overall uh, Palestinian cause. Um, and I think this is also another thing that's frightening uh, the Israeli government so much. If we have not just the intercommunal violence, but an active uh, entry of the um, Palestinian community in Israel into the fray is a game changer. And, and that's, do you think, tends to the belief that there will be more violence in the future, not less. This is a safe assumption in most ethno-nationalist conflicts that are just allowed to simmer away. Uh, at the moment, we don't have negotiations for two states. Uh, but we also have this almost religious fear on part of most stakeholders to begin talking about a single state. And I think it's especially disappointing with regards to international actors who, who are pushing that uh, the same old paradigm of a two-state solution, even if partition is becoming rapidly impossible, but at the same time are not articulating their own baseline vision for what uh, what a single Palestinian-Israeli state should look like. 
So in effect, you have the expansionist Israeli right entirely setting the terms of this new reality. And no one of any comparable influence is articulating alternative visions. Well, it's a gloomy conclusion, but a very articulate and informative one. So thank you very much for that, Dimi. And thank you also to Emily and Ido for your thoughts on this. It's, it's great to have all three of you following this, this important story. And listeners, we have several pieces on this, which I'd strongly encourage you to read if you're interested in the subject. There's Dimi's piece on the complicated picture on the ground in Israel in relations between um, Israelis and Palestinians. Um, Emily is writing today's World Review newsletter on the international reaction. And um, Ido will be writing the newsletter on Monday with uh, some more on what he's been finding out from talking to Palestinians about the political situation in, in, in that camp. So um, we'll put the links to pieces that are already up on the page for this podcast, newsstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. And do subscribe to the World Review newsletter if you don't already for all the latest from the team. I would just like to echo Jeremy's thanks to Ido and Demi and to say that if you have enjoyed this episode of The World Review, we encourage you to like, subscribe, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and to spread the word. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you for listening and until our next episode on Monday. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.